Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director, Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Good to be sharing the audio waves with you again. I want to give a shout out to some Public Health Out Loud listeners. Very wonderful to hear from Scott and Michelle Quillen, um, who told me they enjoyed our Public Health Out Loud podcast, which was great to hear today. But I'm excited about our guest today. So today we have Dr. Jill Marin, Chief of Pediatrics at Women and Infants. Welcome, Dr. Marin. Good to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Jim. So Dr. Marin, you know, you're you're here at Women and Infants. Why don't we just start with a simple, like, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Dr. Jill Marin? And what are you doing over there at Women and Infants? <laughs> sure. So I am a neonatologist. So I specialize in the care of premature or sick newborns in the intensive care unit at Women and Infants Hospital. That's the clinician side of me. The other side of me is a physician scientist. And I've really spent my career trying to develop novel diagnostic assays for use in these very tiny babies to help better understand how they're feeling, how they're developing. Do they have impending illness, a genetic disorder? And then I'm fortunate to be a mom to two wonderful children who are 15 and 17, a wife to an amazing husband. And I have a wonderful golden retriever named Oliver. Dr. Marin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as an adult ID physician, uh, I don't say the words neonatology that much, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, so let me ask you this. What do you do as a neonatologist? What do you, what do you care for? Sure. So really one through five is related to prematurity. So any infant born less than 37 weeks gestation falls under my domain. And so I really, most of my clinical care is focused on dealing with the challenges that prematurity presents, whether it's breathing difficulty, feeding difficulty, you know, being able to keep your body warm and not need an isolate to keep warm and getting ready to go home. But beyond that, we also take care of babies who may have genetic disorders, uh, congenital anomalies, anything from a heart um, anomaly to a gastrointestinal anomaly. Um, we also take care of babies born with infections, babies who are born addicted to opioids, um, as part of the opioid epidemic that we're seeing. So although our main focus is on prematurity, really my specialty cares for a wide variety of babies who are born that need special care, that just aren't quite ready to go home with their parents. Yeah, Dr. Marin, that's great. And, and you do some really interesting research over at Women and Infants. And I think that's really a fun topic for us to explore today. So what are your research interests? Because you really are on, you're kind of on the Star Trek side of medicine, if I, if I go there today. Yeah, I know. I think when I started in this field over two decades ago, one of the things that was most striking is I take care of a patient population that can't communicate with me in the traditional sense. So obviously I'm taking care of babies that can't tell me how they're feeling. They can't say I'm feeling tired or I, you know, um, something's bothering me. And when I would go to their bedside, I would find myself talking to them saying, what's going on today? What are you doing, little one? And that really bothered me. And I said, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to, what I've always termed, give these babies a voice so that I have an opportunity to better assess them? But they're fragile. Um, it's very difficult to do experimentation on them. It's very difficult for us to stick needles in them to get blood, some of the more traditional routes that we would do in older babies or in adults or children. So I find myself saying, well, what could I use? And I landed on saliva, 
And I thought, well, what if I could just collect their saliva? And if I could do that, would there be very important information contained in that biofluid that could help me understand how the baby was developing, how the baby, if the baby was getting sick, um, if the baby was struggling with addiction and why and what that meant. And I started my career really looking to develop salivary assays for use in the newborn. Wonderful. And I think you just uh, summed up uh, all the reasons why I don't care for little babies. Uh, they can't talk to you. They cry. They scream. And uh, that's my own shortcoming as a physician. I like generally like patients that can talk to me and explain. So that's, uh, I guess that's what separates the uh, internists from the pediatricians. Let's talk a little bit about this, the saliva, just for a second, if you don't mind. Uh, that's also been a hot topic during the COVID pandemic in terms of finding, uh, you know, COVID, of course, in saliva. But uh, when you talk about looking at saliva, what's in the saliva? What do you do with the saliva? What are you What are you looking for? Sure. So I think it's important for the audience to recognize that saliva really is a filtrate of blood. In our face, in our neck, we have several salivary glands, and blood passes through those glands, what's in blood can get filtered through those glands and it enters into our mouth. We think of saliva as a way to keep our, you know, mouth moist and help with digestion. And that's true, but we actually can find in saliva everything from viruses and other microbes that live in our mouth as part of our normal habitat, their normal habitat, all the way to developmental genes. We can actually see how the brain is developing in saliva and that's been passed through the blood and it enters into the mouth. We can see a lot about how our body understands hunger. We call that hunger signaling, that our mouth is sensing that our belly is empty and our brain needs to tell us to eat. And that access is very prominent in saliva. And we recognize that. We can see if we're fighting an infection, our body will mount a response and, and send out the troops to fight that infection. We call those, those proteins cytokines. And they're they're plentiful in saliva, even in our very tiniest of babies. And so as we recognize that, my lab really said, well, what if we could focus in on particular aspects, whether it's development or those cytokines or infection, and utilize saliva to better understand what the baby's doing in that moment? Yeah, and, and that's that's great, Dr. Dr. Barron. And I want to get, let's just pick right up on infections. Like, let's understand that a little better. Like, when you're looking at saliva, how does that help you manage infections? And one of the things I just think about is like, so... I'm a pediatrician when I'm not doing this. And I, I've spent many hours in need of intensive care units. And, you know, I, getting blood from a baby, it's hard. You know, quite frankly, the veins are small, arteries are small, everything's small. And so getting blood from a baby really is hard. One, it's hard to get it. And two, you don't want to hurt the baby. And three, you only want to use as much blood as possible because you can make the baby anemic by drawing blood. Um, because when you do phlebotomy, sometimes that's a problem. So when you're looking at saliva and understanding infection, which is really a big issue in the neonatal intensive care unit, tell us more about what you can learn from that. That sounds kind of exciting. This is a big issue in newborn medicine. It gets back to the fact that our babies can't talk to us and our babies often have been born early. So one of the most prescribed drugs in my field are actually antibiotics. And the reason for that is we're so afraid to miss an infection that we overprescribe, not in a bad way per se, but a way that we're sort of stuck. I, my babies can't talk to me. They could be infected. What if I miss it? 
And so one of the things that we really worked on is, was there a way to develop an assay that could reduce the amount of time or overall exposure to antibiotics? And one way we hypothesize of doing that is saying, well, look, we know if you're infected, you mount that response to fight infection. Those are those cytokines that I talked about before. And I know they're in saliva. Well, what if we got saliva from babies and we got it every few hours to see, are you mounting a response to an infection or not? And the beauty of that was it didn't matter what the organism was. Maybe it was a virus. Maybe it was a bacteria. Maybe it was a fungus. We could still see if you were mounting an infection to something. Didn't matter where the infection was. Maybe it was in your bloodstream. Maybe it was in a urinary tract infection. Maybe it was a skin infection. Maybe it was meningitis. Maybe it was a pneumonia. It didn't matter. We were only asking the question, are you mounting a response to an organism that shouldn't be there? And if so, do you actually need to be on antibiotics? And so we've been very fortunate to be funded through the National Institutes of Health to run a national study across the country. We're collecting spit on babies all around the country. Um, all these babies that we think might be infected, but we're not sure. And what we're doing is we're measuring those cytokines. And in fact, we can measure 12 of these cytokines in a single drop of a baby's saliva and quantify them. And we are testing that hypothesis that if, if we see a rise in those cytokines, were those babies truly infected? Did we identify ultimately an organism? Did they warrant antibiotics? And if they didn't rise in cytokines, could we have felt very confident saying, you know what, this baby isn't infected? We don't need to continually expose this baby to antibiotics. We can stop and we can do so with confidence because this assay is highly predictive of infection. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Marin. Very interesting, uh, all this work. I'm going to ask a timely question, uh, which of course is, could this be used to identify uh, potentially babies with COVID? But before I ask that question, maybe what are you seeing in the neonatal intensive care unit in terms of COVID and babies? There's you know, historically with the pandemic, we have not seen SARS-CoV-2 affect uh, younger kids or babies as much at all. Omicron's a little bit different. There's been a lot in the news about, uh, you know, Omicron specifically and, and lately, you know, hospitals being filled up with children. But even taking that down to the neonatal intensive care unit, what have you seen both in the past and right now in terms of how COVID is, is affecting, you know, premature babies, babies in general, and then is the assay you're talking about, is that something that could apply to uh, any of this? Yeah, so great question. So first let's talk about, do babies get infected with COVID? And uh, I wanna separate that between when the baby's um, inside mom and mom's pregnant with the baby and then when the baby's born. So the easy answer is once a baby's born and is out here, yes the baby can become infected with, uh, with, with COVID, with any of the variants. And we need to be really careful when we care for these babies and use very strict precautions. But what we learned through the pandemic was just how amazing that placenta is at protecting the baby and that SARS-CoV really doesn't cross that placenta by and large in the vast majority of cases. So during the pregnant state, the baby does not get infected, even if the mother is. So the placenta has just evolved to try to block those viruses. It can't block all of them, but it seems to be blocking SARS COVID um, virus. Having said that though, if a mother's pregnant and gets very, very sick with COVID, their baby may be born early to save her life. 
And so we did see an awful lot of that during the initial round of the pandemic. What we also know is that if the mother gets vaccinated, those antibodies that she's mounted cross the placenta and protect the baby. So now that's our only line of protection that we have once the baby's born and can be infected. We have the antibodies that the mothers produce that she either passes through pregnancy or can give through breast milk once the baby's born, those antibodies that come through. So the vaccines are really helpful to protect the baby once born, but we really only saw the premature births due to save the mother's life, not because the baby got infected. Can we detect SARS-CoV-2 in saliva? Yes. And there are panels out there. A lot of the school systems right now, I don't know if Rhode Island's utilizing this, the kids spit and they do pool testing. So it is absolutely in the baby's saliva as well. And we could also look at their cytokine levels to see if they're mounting a response. There's been some interesting data coming out in the last couple of weeks that even though the mother uh, protected the baby during pregnancy, but the baby also mounted an inflammatory response if the mother was infected with COVID and how that was occurring still is unknown, but we're seeing it. So both the cytokines and the diagnostic assay are important here um, for monitoring SARS in our babies. You know, Dr. Marin, one of the things that's interesting about your research is saliva. I mean, quite frankly, working with spit, you know, it's not something that I grew up in medicine with. There's a lot you can do with saliva. In other words, you could measure the whole genome of a baby from saliva, which I find fascinating. And I guess why understand the genome of a baby from saliva? And then what are some of the ethical considerations about doing that? You know, because sure. it's something where once you know the genome of a baby, that's quite a bit of information you got there for the rest of a baby's life. Yeah. Yeah. So some of my work extends beyond saliva and I do do genomic studies. These are assays that are really targeted at our very sick babies. You know, we started the conversation talking about beyond prematurity and there are times that we take care of babies that may be born with multiple anomalies that developmentally, we may have many concerns and they also may have been born premature and we're very worried that there's something genetically amiss with these babies, but we don't know what it is. One of the real passions of my research is to bring these novel technologies that are rapidly getting integrated into the adult populations or older children populations into these babies because they need it. They need that to give themselves the voice. So when we integrate genomic testing into babies, I believe very passionately that it should be in a targeted way. And it should be that we are really looking at babies that we believe are sick enough that warrant this type of testing. And I say that not because the genomic testing or in other words, DNA analysis isn't highly informative, it is. Um, we know that in a targeted population, we very frequently can make a diagnosis in a baby over half the time within just a matter of days to weeks. And that, that has huge clinical impact. It's hugely important to the family to be able to give a name and a diagnosis and, and see a path forward for that child. But it's DNA. And we have to remember, I, I talk a lot about giving a baby a voice. When we, when we go ahead and sequence a baby's DNA, they haven't given us their permission to do so. And there's a lot of information that may be contained in, in someone's DNA that is hugely personal, that may be private, that may not affect that individual till later in life. Um, and we, we share that responsibility of protecting that information, but yet at the same time, making it accessible to that baby in due time 
when the baby comes of age, should they want to know something about their own genetic material that may influence their family life, the health, the health of their future children. So it's both a wonderful testing platform, but it also comes with enormous responsibility to that child to make sure that child is protected and can have access to the information contained within his or her DNA at the appropriate time. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Marin. All great points. You know, as you're chatting, uh, it reminds me of sort of the future of medicine in general. I think one thing that we're moving towards uh, in medicine is this whole idea, and some people may have heard of it, of personalized medicine. And I think in the adult world, we think about, you know, at a, a point in the future, some point, and some of this is even happening now, where you can sequence one's genome, you can look for your specific risk of diseases, and then you can have tailored personal individualized interventions, depending on what your genes show and what you may be at risk for. It's really kind of scary a little bit, kind of cool, kind of Star Trek, as Dr. McDonald mentioned. But what are your thoughts of what this looks like? I mean, you're doing some some, uh, very advanced stuff uh, in neonomedicine. What does the future look like, and especially in terms of genetics? And I know your neonomedicine, in my opinion, is already on the forefront, really, of genetic testing just because of what you're doing. But what is the next step? What does 10, 20, 50 years from now look like in terms of how we think about genetics and and medicine in the neonatal world? No, it's a great question, Phil, and I think... it gives us all great pause and we have to be very thoughtful right now. And it gets back to this concept of just because we can, should we? Uh, I will say that, you know, when we look back at the Human Genome Project, which took about 20 years to do and cost billions of dollars, and we had this great hope that once we sequenced the human genome, we could solve all disease. So it turns out that wasn't true at all, actually, right? We, we can't. Biology is far more complex than the code that, that it makes us. Um, but what's happened over these last next 20 years is that you can sequence someone pretty cheaply and pretty quickly. So we have the capability to use this technology to sequence almost everyone. You know, maybe you do it for about $10,000 or less, and you can do it within a matter of a day or two. You can sequence. You actually sequence a person once, but interpret it throughout the lifetime. And that's really a concept that's well known in this field. But how we do this in a responsible way is something that we all need great pause and sort of a stop button to make sure just because we can do it, should we? I think from a medical standpoint, these technologies hold enormous potential to improve care and to what you speak about, personalized care. And when you can do that starting off at life, how amazing does that theoretically sound? Where you could identify a baby that's at risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and really begin to shape their life from the beginning. So they're not treating the disease, they're always preventing it. This is really a great hope and it's something ideally we could all aspire to. But it's never that simple. Um, It's never that clean. Um, Biology is complex. We may see that you're at risk, but that doesn't mean you're going to get it. And that's because there are many other factors at play. And we need to be very cautious, particularly in children, when we see things like adult onset disease, of when they should be alerted to the fact that they have that. We want them to have a free childhood. We don't want them burdened at a young age for the fact that they may have breast cancer when they get older, or they may have Huntington's disease. You know, that's an enormous burden that they really need to come of age and want to know about and make a conscious decision to know about. But at the same time, we hold that information and we would hate to have them grow up, develop cancer and say, but you knew when I was born, why didn't you tell me? 
And these are really the crossroads I think that we're at here. And this is where we need to be extraordinarily thoughtful about how we use this technology, integrate this technology, but to me, even more importantly, how we control, manage, and appropriately share the information contained within it. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Marin. Great point. And I, you know, you touched on some of these interesting ethical aspects. And I think it's fascinating. It reminds me of some of these kind of science fiction uh, books. Uh, that's one of the genre I love to read, by the way. I've read a lot of science fiction, kind of a dork in that way. But in, in some of these stories, right, there's sort of this concept of self-fulfilling prophecy and knowing your destiny, if you will. And some people, you know, does that feed into, you know, how one lives their life? Uh, certainly in a healthy manner, that would be good. But especially things like mental illness, you know, predisposition, predisposition to mental illness. Uh, what are the ethical aspects of knowing, for example, that maybe you're going to develop a disease by the age of 50, no matter what you do, how you live your life, you know, the you know, consequences of being at risk for substance use, addiction, mental illness, uh, so many things out there. It's, you know, it sounds like this is something we should be talking about now. Oh, I absolutely think we, we need to talk about it now. And it needs to be talked about in parallel. You know, just because we have this amazing, amazing technology that can make these diagnoses does not get us off the hook of all the things you're even you're even bringing up. And, and we know in some very small studies that this can even affect how you parent. If the parent knows that a certain child may die early or may have difficulty, they could treat children within the nuclear family differently. These are very real issues. And if we don't have have very open, honest conversations about how we're going to deal with this, this will only hurt us. And then I think we live in a society that already mistrusts medicine enough. We cannot continue to contribute to it. We have to acknowledge what these tests can and can't do, what the power of them is, and what the risks are. And, and I don't propose to have all the right answers. I don't, for sure. But I am very cognizant that these are heavy, heavy tests that we are doing um, that can offer great, great good. And I've seen it. But we cannot just take the good and pretend not to see everything else associated with it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Marin. I I just, you know, you talk about trust is such an important issue. I mean, one of the things I've really been thinking about lately is, is trust a social determinant of health? And it's something I'm going to be thinking about in 2022 is because I really think when I look back at the culture I live in, in the United States, mistrust is a huge issue. Um, and it leads to people to make decisions about their personal well-being, their personal health, and just whatever they do for a living. I want to just get back to you a little bit, you know, as we talk about, you're the chief of pediatrics at Women and Infants Hospital, one of the best hospitals in the world. So no small accomplishment to be sure. I mean, there you are. Where are you going? I mean, you know, what's talk a little bit about your motivation. You know, what mark do you want to leave on the profession of medicine? I think that's a question every physician should ask themselves, but you're in a position where you actually can leave a mark on the profession of medicine. What are your thoughts on that? No, it's a great question, right? That's another question that can keep you up at night. What's your legacy? Uh, you know, when I look back on my career, I hope that one, some of these diagnostic assays I've been working so hard on have translated and I leave that as part of my legacy. But I really believe in the, the infant is at the center of everything I do. And I believe very passionately that we have to think creatively. We have to think in multidisciplinary teams on how best to approach that baby. 
I am devoted to improving the research that we do on these babies in a very safe and hopefully trustworthy way for the parents to improve outcomes. I think there's an enormous amount of work that we have left to do. But, you know, there are buckets as a physician scientist, you know, that at the bedside, you hope you have made impact on the families. And I hope on an individual level, there will be families that looked back and said, we were grateful to have had Dr. Marin take care of our baby. But on a more global level that I've left my mark with assays that could be used globally around the world to help babies long after I leave my profession, but that others also can build off of. You know, I always looked at my career as I just want one little building block in this massive pyramid or building we're building to leave behind. I stand on the shoulders of others and my job is to make sure others can stand on the shoulders of me. And that's a really great thing about medicine and science in general is that it really is a team effort. It all builds upon uh, others. And I think as you so eloquently stated, uh, you know, it, it really uh, builds on others um, and, and the great work that so many uh, people do across the country, across the world. So thank you again for all your work. I think as we close up here, any final thoughts for people, especially uh, given where we are with the COVID pandemic, with Omicron, for people that have new babies, any final thoughts or words of encouragement for people? I think, you know, this has obviously been a very hard time. It's been an isolating time for families as well to keep everyone safe. And as we come out of this pandemic, and we will, I think newborn medicine really stands at the cusp of just some really great innovative ways to take care of our babies, you know, really fighting to bring these technologies into them in a responsible way, in a way that can only help them, um, not hurt them. And, uh, you know, I have great, I have great hope and excitement for what we can do for the babies moving forward. We've come a long way. This is a pretty young field across medicine. Um, and we continue to save an enormous amount of babies do great clinical work here at women and infants. And I'm excited to see where we take the state in the next, in the next years. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Marin. And I'm excited about your research. You know, it's, it's interesting. What you're working on is novel. You're looking at saliva, spit, if you will. And we really see, you know, the future of medicine here. In other words, one of the things I really think is important as we close today is like, it, it's not a mystery until you solve it. And then it's science. Once it's science, you know it. And then you can actually make decisions about your personal health, your well-being, and move forward. So what you're doing is practical, pragmatic, and has the future implications for everybody's life. Because quite frankly, all of us need to know about our personal health. And I've if it was up to me to spit in a tube as opposed to get blood, I'm good. I'm good with that. I'd rather spit than have someone stick a needle in me. So we're getting to the end of our episode. Stephanie, it's time to cue the music because it's time for the final word with Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan, what is the final word today? Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you, Dr. Marin, uh, for being here today and for all your work in general on behalf of the state. Thank you so much for uh for the work you do and in, uh, including your research and for joining us today. So in closing, I do want to leave people with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is. Every morning we are born again and what we do today is what matters most from the Buddha. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great. <laughs>